John chapter 2. As John continues in this little book of 1 John to kind of unload all that he had learned about a relationship with Jesus. John's life had been absolutely transformed by Jesus. And as we saw even back in the first chapter, he really wanted others to share in that. As the last song that we sang about just knowing how much God loves us. Because God's love changes us in ways that nothing else possibly can. And if something doesn't change us, we're going to spiral down like everyone else in the world. And John understood that it was all about this relationship with Jesus. That, that if we had that right, if we understood God's love for us and we let him love through us, everything else would fall into place. And so he's continuing to develop this theme, and it's his desire to see our joy made full. It's his desire also for us to discover a reality of life, whereby we're, we're not just adhering to religious tenets, but that we are actually walking in a living relationship with the living God. And so we've come to verse 12 and he initially here in these first three verses, verses 12, 13, and 14, he kind of sets up what he's about to say. But his point in these three verses is that God meets you where you are. You don't need to get somewhere in order to find a relationship with God. You don't, it, there's not a certain level to which you need to ascend in order to then finally connect with God. But John here addresses three categories of people, really young people and people who are in the prime of life, so-called, and people who are more mature people. And he says, God meets you where you are. And he said, what I'm about to say relates to each of you, to all of you, really. And so um, it's a, some people have really made a big deal about these verses and tried to figure out uh, great distinctions. But I think if we just take it as it's read, it's John's heart saying, what I'm saying to you, what I'm about to tell you is for all of you. And so first of all, he addresses the little children, <laughs> And that word for little children is just a term of affection that is referring to those who are younger. So they may be those who are younger in the faith. This, this little um, word could have referred to anyone up to the age of 20, so teenagers and below. But he's not making a real rigid distinction here, but he's just addressing the younger ones, those who have most of their life still ahead of them. And he says, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And this, as we are beginning our walk with the Lord, no matter what our chronological age is, as we grow in the Lord, this is where it starts. And remember in chapter one, he went to great lengths to explain to us our sin, the fact that we can face our sin because God forgives our sin just by us confessing, by us agreeing with him about our sin. And so that's kind of where a relationship with God starts. It's that you are forgiven. And that's really, that opens the door to everything else in life. You will never grow spiritually beyond 
your capacity to comprehend that you have been forgiven. There are a whole lot of people who have their growth completely stunted spiritually because they don't understand this basic matter of forgiveness. And if, if you weren't around in, in our study of the second half of, of the uh, first chapter of 1 John, you definitely would want to listen to that again because I think it's some of the most, verses 5 through 10 are some of the most important verses in the Bible of chapter 1. But here's, here's what happens. If you, if you don't understand that you've been forgiven, you carry the weight and the guilt and the condemnation that Jesus died for you not to have. And what also happens is when you don't understand that you are forgiven, you are not able to forgive others, and therefore you grow in a bitterness and an, and an anger and a resentment, and you're, and you're stuck just blaming other people for what's wrong because you haven't come to the point where you just see yourself clean before God, free before Him, forgiven by Him. And so the very first baby steps of what leads to a loving relationship with God is the full awareness of your forgiveness. And it's so important when we deal with kids to let them understand forgiveness. Nothing will mess a kid up more than when they do wrong that you address that, but you don't let it go. You continue to remind them of past failure. And you continue to make them feel like, you know, look, You've done wrong, and you're going to have to make this up somehow. You're going to have to earn your way back into my trust. And you hear that kind of thing all the time in parenting. Um, and it's so devastating for children to not understand the concept of forgiveness. But for all of us, for some of us, we were never made to understand forgiveness. Some of us have, have carried burdens of guilt our entire lives, that people would heap on us, this is your fault, look what you've done, look at the damage that you've caused, you're broken, you'll never be the same, and I will never trust you again because of your failure. But a relationship with God has to begin with the notion of forgiveness. And to help others to understand that, is the most important thing we can communicate because that's what opens the door to relationship. And so for each of us, whenever someone fails, our response should be to bring them to forgiveness, to help them to understand that a walk with God begins with a walk of forgiveness. And this isn't just for the young. It doesn't matter how old you get. If you begin to forget that you are forgiven, then you will lose your capacity to ever enter into a deeper and a more mature relationship with God or with others. This is pivotal. This is foundational. This is the ABCs of life is being set free by the forgiveness of God. And so John says, little children, this starts with this, you're forgiven. And it's not for your sake, it's for his name's sake. It's because of what he has done. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you came here this morning, 
When you got up today, did you feel forgiven? If not, then you have to go back to that place and receive his forgiveness and step out of the darkness and into the light. But then he says, he later addresses himself to the older people. I write to you, fathers. And it's not that it's not mothers also. The word that he uses means father. But as we've mentioned before, in those days, it was pretty much the men who were reading. But this would apply to any of us, just like little children or boys and girls. Um, this, you know, this reference to fathers, the same thing would apply to you mothers as well. But these are people who have lived most of their life. It's not talking necessarily about a young parent, but it's someone who is fulfilling that role of being one of the elder statesmen, sort of, if you will. In, in some ways, the word that you're going to see for young men, or really it should be translated young people, because that's not a specifically masculine term, um, those would be people who are the most in the prime of the vigor of their life. And sorry about that, but that was generally considered in those days from 20 to 40. So, you know, but today I consider 57 <laughs> as the new 40. So if you're older than me, this is you. If you're younger than me, you're still vigorous. But so anyway... To, to you old guys, you, you, you who are older than I am, he says, I write to you fathers. I mean, and it's cool that he uses a term that means you're someone who leads, you're someone who cares, you're someone who has dedicated your life to others. You, you never understand life until you understand what it means to be a father. And you may go, yeah, but I mean... I'm not married, I don't have kids, or, you know, that's okay. You have to find a way to father somebody. You have to find a way to reach out to those who are younger and parent them because you learn something by being a parent to someone that you can't learn any other way. It's a part of, of the life process of getting to the point where you are there for those who are younger than you are. You're there to help walk them through, to lead them through the path. But he says, I've written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. Him who is from the beginning. Remember back in verse 1 of chapter 1? He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which our hands have handled, we've looked upon him concerning the word of life. So to the fathers, he's saying, where you start is that you know Jesus. <laughs> it's, that, it's that knowledge of him. Now, that doesn't mean you're finished there, but one of the things that life should teach you as you walk with the Lord for a period of time, as you read his word, as you go through whatever experiences God takes you through, as you become a parent, and this really starts with initial parenting. This starts when you're younger and you begin to mentor others. I think in some ways this father phase for me started even before I had kids. It started when I was a young youth pastor and I was looking out for others. I wanted to inspire them and to lead them and to, and to draw them, lead them forward. And, and so 
through all of those processes, that goes on for a lifetime. It could refer to parents, it could refer to grandparents, it could refer to anyone who cares about those who've, who've come after them. Uh, it comes down to you know Jesus. You know that one who was from the beginning. He's always been here, he doesn't change. And knowing him, the more you know him, the more that leads you forth in all of life. And I think a lot of times when we find ourselves in a difficult situation or we find ourselves lacking wisdom, if we've walked with God for a while and we've grown in him and we are those fathers and mothers of, of the spiritual life, every once in a while, just ask yourself, you know Jesus. Is what you're doing like something that he would do? Is responding in the way that you are consistent with Jesus? Can you see Jesus doing this? Now, a lot of times people have used that, you know, what would Jesus do thing almost as a hammer, like to make you feel guilty. Don't forget that you are forgiven when you are dealing with the fact that the person of Jesus is someone who you have gotten to know. And it takes time because you continue to get to know him more you know, Paul said he gave up everything, and all he cared about was just knowing him. But maturity, ultimately, is knowing Jesus. That's what it comes down to. So when in this passage, when he has some other things to say to little children and some other things to say to the young people in the prime of life, to the fathers, he ends up saying exactly the same thing. I've written to you, fathers, in verse 14, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And so, ultimately, that's maturity, is knowing him. Jesus said that that's what eternal life is, is knowing him. And so, he has that to those who are mature, and he says, what matters most is that you know him. And so, I'm coming to you making an assumption that you know him. Now then, he says, I write to you young people, those who are in the vigor and the strength and the prime of life, so 20 to 57. Um, <laughs> he says, because you have overcome the wicked one. So he says, things have happened in your life. You've covered some ground. You're becoming effective you're getting things done because you have been able to figure out that you don't have to do things the way the devil wants you to do it. You don't have to be completely mowed over by every temptation, every alternative, every thing that would draw you off your path. If you are young and strong, if you have vigor and you are accomplishing things for the Lord, in order to do that, you have to learn to overcome evil. You'll never do that completely. But in the passage that we're going to go into after we read these verses, he makes it really clear that there are choices to be made. And what he is saying to those who are young and strong and effective is that you have begun to make those choices whereby you learn to say no to the enemy and you learn to say yes to God. 
That's where our effectiveness and our power lies. Then he goes on again and says, I write to you, little children. Now this time it's actually a different Greek word for little children. It still means little children, but in this case, it has the word paideia instead of technica, and it's a, it's a word that emphasizes students. So he's kind of taking them beyond maybe the, the preschool toddler kind of stage and on to the point where they're learning. But he says, I've written to you, little children, because you have known the Father. Initially, understanding that they are forgiven is that which is most important, and it's important that none of us ever lose that. But it's also important right off the bat that we come to know God as our Father. There are people whose growth is completely stunted by not being forgiven. There are others whose growth is completely stunted because they never understand God as their Father. And sometimes this is because we've had terrible examples of our earthly fathers. And for some people, that just blocks their capacity to get their head around this whole concept of, you have a father. And often those people also struggle with understanding what it is to be forgiven. But it's so important for us to come to him as a father. He loves us. He wants to protect us. He cares for us. And to get back to being a child of God and to relating to his fatherhood of us is essential for any kind of growth that we're ever going to have. And, you know, for some of you, your father was an amazing father. Or, you know, your father is sitting here with you, so you have to nod and pretend like they were. <laughs> and for you to, to relate to God as your father is simple. Because all the best things about your dad is what God is. Uh, and so making this transition might be easy for you. For some of you, your fathers were even disgraceful, or perhaps just they deserted you. And that's, it's tougher, but see now what you need to do is an extra little step mentally and recognize that God is really your father. He is your real father. You know, it, it, he was the one who was always there. And everything that you ever wished your father was and he wasn't, that's who God is to you. And in some ways, I believe that the potential to connect to God as a father is actually greater in those who didn't have a, an earthly father who was a great example. Because I don't care how good your father is, your father is not as good of a father as God. And in the same way that when, you, when you're cold and then you walk into a warm room, it just feels really good, or when it's really hot and you walk into an air-conditioned room, it's just, oh, it's so refreshing. Or when you walk out of a theater and the sun looks so bright, when you have been deprived of the kind of father-son, father-daughter relationships that, that God really intended you to have, when you discover that God is your father, it means so much more to you. And it means so much more to you to be able to play that father role for others as well. Because having done without it, like going to a restaurant when you're starved, 
you can really appreciate it. So don't, don't feel like you're stunted in any way if you're like, boy, I don't know. I, I mean, I kind of grew up, for me, father, the whole concept was just weird. And uh, there was abuse and, and just crazy, literally. And, and so to talk about God as my father, I had, by the time I met the Lord personally, I had pretty much decided, you know, I was almost 18, and I pretty much decided, you know what, I've got by without a father all these years. I'm okay without a dad. But he came along to me, and it took me a long time, frankly, to get out of the little children's stage where I understood I really do have a father. I really don't have to just always protect myself. He will do that. He is my father. And so John's saying, you're, if you're in that spot, I'm telling you, we're going to build on the awareness that God is your Father. That's where I will meet you, and that's where He will meet you. But you can't even get started in a, in a real relationship with God without understanding that you are forgiven and that He is your dad. And then he goes on and says... Uh, I have written to you, verse 14, fathers, again, because you have known him who was from the beginning. That's it, you know him. You know him. You know him. Live consistently with what you know of him. And then again to the young people, and he changes it up or adds to it a bit. He says, I have written to you, young people, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Good things are happening in your life. God is using you. You are able to encourage and help others. You are fighting those battles of life on a daily basis. And you're strong because of the Word of God. God's Word being at home in us is the most powerful tool that we have at our disposal to be useful to God. And to bring us to that point of being fathers who are comfortable, caring. Fathers who really know Jesus. The battle has to be fought in a place whereby the word of God is central to your, to your warfare. Because, as Paul said, you know, the, wor- the, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal. They aren't fleshly. But they're mighty. And our battle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And if we're going to win that battle, those of us who are still in the, the vitality of the battle, it has to be done as the Word of God lives in us. We can't do it on our own. We can't get the work done in our flesh. We have to get it done by doing it his way, his timing, in relationship with him. And as we grow in his word and as we have victories on a daily basis in our lives, that's what brings us to ultimate maturity of going, I really know Jesus. That's how we get to know him. So John in these verses is basically saying, look, I'm starting wherever you are. At whatever stage you are in, in your spiritual development, what I'm telling you has to do with you. And I'm not telling you to leapfrog. I'm not telling you to just 
Skip over your adolescence and skip over those middle ages and just get right to, to just knowing Jesus and being a father. No. He says, God meets you where you are. So if you don't yet know that you are forgiven, then you need to know that you're forgiven. If you haven't yet come to that aspect of having God be your father, then you focus on that. He will meet you where you are. If you feel condemned and if you feel like an orphan, he'll meet you there. And he will bring you to a point where through the work of the word of God, powerful things can happen in your life. He has amazing plans for you. And then he will continue to lead you to where in that adult, older adult stage, you have this relationship whereby you know him. And he says, what I'm telling you applies to every step in that development, in that spiritual development. And now we come to verse 15, which is really the center of the focus of what he wants to say in this section. And what he addresses is the fact that, you know, it's one thing to know God, but it's another thing to love him. It's one thing to know about him and even to be forgiven by him. But there's so much more because our relationship with God is to be a love relationship. It's not even just about knowing him. It's about loving him and knowing him causes you to love him. But there are also things out there that will block that love. And if you don't get to the point where you really love God, then you're missing out on the essence of the Christian life. And John's trying to bring us to the point where we finally figure, you know, we're like, this is how it works. This is what's supposed to be happening. And that all culminates, as he said earlier, in love. It's love for others, but ultimately, really, you can't talk about loving others until you understand that God loves you and until you understand that God can love through you to others. And so the problem with that is loving God isn't something that you can add on to the rest of your life. It's not just something that you can just kind of tack on the side and, you know, just everything else can be the same, but God is a nice little addition to your life. Loving God is exclusive. There are so many things that can choke out the love of God. There are so many things in this world, as he's going to show us, that will block you from seeing God's love for you, that will prevent you from being able to love others with his love. It just gets jammed up. It just gets, it can get complicated. And, and today, I'll be honest with you, an awful lot of people who present what it is to come into a relationship with God are making it sound so simple as if all you do is just, life keeps going on the way it is, but you know, Jesus will join up with you and hang out with you along the pathway. But the problem is, love for God is exclusive. He loves me and he loves you exclusively. But he also demands that if, if we are going to love him, he's gonna need our undivided attention. He will not just be one of the little gods on the shelf. He does not want to join up with our vision. He wants us to sign up for his. 
And a part of that is to let go of whatever it is we were worshiping before we came to him. Because he will not share the stage with anyone. Remember when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought, this is a good luck charm. And they took the Ark of the Covenant and they stuck it in the temple to Dagon. And there were all these other gods in there. And when they came in in the morning, all the other gods were knocked over. So they set them back up again, and again, all the other gods were knocked over. They were kind of confused about that, so God gave everyone hemorrhoids so they would know, this is what you are to me. You are an uncomfortable, painful, I can't, you can't sit down because I won't share. If you want me, you're going to have to topple over the other gods. And so they decided, you know what, then I'd rather not have God, and they sent the, they sent the ark off. They go, forget this. I'd rather have all my other gods and not have him than to have him and lose all my other gods. But many of us, in the same way in our lives, are trying to have a love relationship with God and still allow all of the other things to have prominent positions in our awarenesses, in our lives. And, and we're, we're walking through our lives with hemorrhoids pretending like we're fine. <laughs> pretending like, what? You know? and, and everything in our life keeps getting knocked on its face, and we're going, we're blaming God, like, God, why would you do this? You know, I worship my job, boom, I lose my job, I'm like, God, you're supposed to join my life and do everything I want you to do. God, why didn't you answer this prayer? I'm upset with you because, God, you're not doing things my way. You're not doing things the way that I think you should. And God says, no, it's, it's either my way or your way. And if your way means following the world, then I'm sorry, I can't, I can't handle that. That won't work. I can't sort of, I, God will not be a consultant to us. As we go through life, and every once in a while we get his opinion, we can take it or not. And so here in verse 15, 1 John chapter 2, he says, do not love the world. Greek word there for world is cosmos. It refers to the whole worldly system, the whole way the world does things. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Basically, what John is saying is you can either love things or love God. You can either do things the way the world does them or you can do things the way God does them. But you will choose to live after things and after worldly wisdom, and after what the, the way the world does things, at the cost of really having a love relationship with God. And then he goes on and elaborates in verse 16. He says, for all that is in the cosmos, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. This is an important verse because it gives us kind of a threefold picture 
of everything that will stop us from knowing God's love and showing His love. It's kind of every sort of temptation is summed up in these three, three things in some ways, and there's a lot of overlap between them. It's not important to make the distinction, but this is really what things are about in the world. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the flesh doesn't just refer to sexual longings. Now, the word lust, epithumio in the Greek, means to get really worked up. It's, a, it's, it's that this hard breathing comes upon you. And so it's this, what we would sometimes refer to as passion, it's passion for things that are wrong. The, the epithumia of the flesh is deciding that what drives you is how you feel. And so if I feel this, that's what I'm going to do. Some people would even you know, get confused between the lust that they feel and what God wants. And often people will decide that if I feel something, it must be God. If I want to do something, I have that lust of flesh, and therefore it's God. Now, this is why the issue of homosexuality has become so problematic among Christians because there are people who struggle with homosexual desires and yet they want to walk in fellowship with God. And frankly, I think the church has really blew it in this because what we have tended to, to advocate is if you have those desires, then you just must not be a Christian. God never said that. He never would say that. But he teaches all of us that we need to choose not to live according to that which our flesh tells us because our flesh lies to us. Our flesh wants to destroy us. That's part of the effects of sin. But now, because the church hasn't dealt with this very well and we haven't been honest and open, now there are people who slide in and they would just say, you know what? If you want this, God must have made you that way, and therefore God made you to live your best life in a same-sex relationship. And that's so destructive. And if you just think about it and extend it a little further, I mean, I'll ask you, and you ask yourself, is everything that your body tells you you want to do, is that really good? When you have given in to just because I want this, I'm going to do it, because this makes my heart race, that's the path I'm going to go, how's that worked for you? Is that, I mean, we know there are some things that we want really badly, but we know that they aren't good for us. And when we give in to those things, we always feel lousy. I had a tough week, and I was going through just a really difficult time, and I was just going, what's life even here for? And uh, I'm okay now, don't worry. But <laughs> what I finally did, I knew I had to do something. And so my wife was out of town, so I just went and ate a big bag of Doritos. Okay, and a Hostess lemon pie. Now, I really wanted those. And I ate them. But you know what? I really knew I shouldn't have. And it, it didn't satisfy me the way I thought it would. 
Um, all it did was make me not want Doritos and Hostess pies as much till the next crisis in my life. But, you know, that's just the way we are. We want certain things. But what John is telling us here is if we want to connect on the highest level with God, we have to accept the fact that just because we feel like it is not a reason to do it. Just because an idea comes into your head doesn't mean you have to turn it into action. Our brains are capable of producing all kinds of stupid notions and desires. And, you know, you can want something that makes no sense at all. I don't understand people who just lust after vegetables <laughs> or seafood. or What causes someone to eat, you know, that raw fish sushi? You know, it's like... To me, that looks nuts. And you know, you're, you go to your little sushi bar and you're injecting mercury and lead and everything else. And you know, it's not good, but, but somehow your body has been conditioned, no doubt through some sort of um, brain injury, that, <laughs> that eating raw fish that's full of damaging chemicals is somehow a good thing. It doesn't fill you up. It doesn't really taste like anything at all. It only tastes like whatever you dip it in. But how does that work? Well, we could pick on a whole lot of different things in that area. But the point is, your desire that comes from your flesh is unreliable. And in fact, if you choose to live your life based on what you feel like doing, you're going to be wrong. And you're going to eliminate a lot of what God wants to do in your life. The lust of the flesh was, and, and all of these, by the way, are seen in Genesis chapter 3 when Eve was tempted by the serpent. And she knew that if they ate the fruit, they would die. She understood that. But she, but she said she looked at it, and it looked like it would taste good. And then it also was pleasant to the eyes. It was good looking, and that's the second one. And then she said it would make you wise, and that appealed to her pride. Well, nothing new under the sun. That which caused Eve to fall is the same thing that will destroy us unless we can get a handle on it and decide that's not how we're going to live our life. So the second thing, the lust of the eyes. You can't make choices just based on how it looks. There are some things that are very attractive that are very destructive, and so, if you live your life constantly following whatever it is that looks good, then you'll live your life foolishly. And then finally, the pride of life. This is really the idea of living your life based on what other people will think of you. Oh, it's, it's one of the most powerful forces in our life. Sometimes everything can be fine, but all of a sudden somebody has a bad idea about you, someone thinks poorly of you, and that hurts you because you care about what people think of you, and as a result, you allow it to completely throw you off track and, and just not, and, and lose your joy and lose that love connection with the Lord and lose your love for others. Pride is so destructive. Pride will ruin everything. And so, but you know, when you think about it, this is how the world does things. If you just go home today and watch some TV commercials, 
Now, thankfully, 30-second skip button. I don't watch many commercials anymore. But if you watch commercials, you will see what the world is promoting. In fact, if you look at what's on television, you'll see what the world is promoting. And this is their motivation. It's going to be an appeal to the lust of the flesh. This is going to get your heart pumping. It's going to appeal to the lust of the eyes. Look at how beautiful you can be. Look at how beautiful this new car is. Look at how beautiful this area of the country is where you can, or this other country where you can take a vacation. Your eyes. And then pride, ultimately. If you do this, people are going to really admire you. They will look up to you. It's amazing how many destructive things we can do. And you know, ultimately, the real lie is that the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life only serve to destroy us ultimately. And the funny thing is they're self-destructive. Those who follow the lust of their flesh will never be satisfied. And it'll always take something a little bit more to get their heart racing again. Those who look at things and go, I want that because it looks good, will find out those things get ugly too, a lot sooner than you think. And those who live their lives worrying about what other people think of them and in their own pride making that their priority, ultimately, you'll lose the respect and the approval of everyone anyway because all of that is so deceptive. All of that is of the world. And a relationship with God is something that supersedes all of that, but it demands an exclusive commitment whereby when we come to him, if we really want to know him and we really want to love him and to know how much he loves us, we have to see those three categories for what they are, and that is their lies of the enemy. Now, that doesn't mean that your flesh is bad or that fleshly desire is bad. That doesn't mean that something, for something to look good, that makes it bad. That doesn't mean that, that for something to make you feel good about yourself or people approve of you, that there's something wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. We're not to be ascetics where we just go live in a little cave and deny ourselves of all these pleasures. The Bible makes it clear that even your flesh and your you know, vision and your, and your aesthetic appreciation and your sense of self-worth, that those are things that God created and he wants. But if any of those are on the throne, if any of those are the choices that you make, as opposed to putting him first, then any of those things will destroy you. One bag of Doritos a year won't destroy you. Three bags of Doritos a day can. <laughs> and so he's just saying these things have to be in perspective. Now as he goes on, he says, And the world, verse 17, is passing away, and the lust of it. These things are temporary. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And this is the centrality of the exclusivity of the love of God. It's not that you deny your flesh, your eyes, you know, or your pride. It's that you do the will of God 
despite whatever it is that those things are telling you, despite whatever the world would say to you, you do not make decisions based on what most people think or what most people do. Your life is not led by a committee of you and Oprah and USA Today and what all your friends think and, and what everybody's gonna, how everyone's gonna, ju- you don't live your life that way. Because ultimately for someone who comes to a mature relationship with God and really loves him and knows how he loves them, we have to get to the point where we say, I just want to know what God wants. And all of these other things will simply confuse the picture. Now, it's amazing how when you just say, God, I want to do what you want. I want to follow your will. It's amazing how much pleasure there is, physically even. It's amazing how beautiful life can be. And it's amazing how good you feel about yourself and how others will sometimes appreciate you. But those are things that will follow a life of obeying the will of God. And so John is just saying, you have a choice to make. Are you going to let the world, are you going to let the way everyone else does things dictate the way you're going to do things? Or will you live your life by simply looking for what God wants? Not messing with it, not twisting it, but just saying, you know what? God, you can take everything away from me. And whether I ever achieve what I want to achieve or not, I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to cheat. God, I just want you. I want your will. I just want you to lead and guide my life. And when you do that, you'll find that your flesh and your eyes and your pride will be fine. They'll be satisfied. You'll know that you're getting it when you do feel a sense of satisfaction in all areas of your life across the board. But to put those things first is to miss out on really discovering God's love. He really does love us so much. He loves us passionately. And when we respond to that love, he will give us love for others that we couldn't have even imagined. But it has to be when we come to him and say, God, I want what you want. I'm not good at running my own life. That's not working for me. And so God, I I need you to call the shots. I need you to be my Lord. I need you to be my dad. I, I want you to forgive me. I want to get to know you. I want to have victory over the things that would destroy me, and I want to walk in your love. And that's the heart of John here in this passage and throughout this whole book, and he's going to say it in a bunch of different ways. John was an amazing writer in that he approaches this from a lot of angles, but this is really the crux of it. This is the center of it, that walking with him and growing in him ultimately has to come when we decide that it's his way. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word, for these reminders, for the heart of the Apostle John as he presents to us the necessity and the importance of walking with you, with you having the ultimate authority in our lives.
doing your will and therefore finding out that when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, everything else will be piled on us in abundance. Thanks for this reminder. Thank you for your word. Help us this week not to get sidetracked and not to allow our lives to be driven by that which crowds out your love. In Jesus' name, amen.